Good morning. We'll be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, they are, though they are not, but liars, I will make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I just want to correct the record. Prior to Monday, I had no trouble pronouncing plurality. <laughs> just, uh, I don't know what happened. It was something went on on Monday night. It wasn't good. Anyway, we'll all remember plurality of eldership now. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging that we certainly need the help of your spirit to understand the scriptures. Your word has inspired... Uh, the, your spirit has inspired your word and many parts of it are mysterious to us. And there are some sections of today's passage, Lord, that we really have to wrestle with. Will you please help us? Help me as I preach your word. Help us as we hear that word from you. And strengthen us, Lord, that we might be a church like the church in Philadelphia, even in our weakness, strong and faithful to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but Tasmania is actually known for its seismic activity. It's been well studied. Did you know that the Tamar River is on a geological fault line? It runs right through Launceston. So about 15 years ago, I was sitting in our lounge room and I could feel the chair shaking and the house starting to shake. I thought, that's an earthquake, goodness me. Uh, it's quite disconcerting when you know the ground underneath you is not exactly terra firma. It's not always firm. It's some, sometimes terra. So um, the most significant earthquake recorded in Launceston was a series of 2,500 major quakes 
Near the end of the 19th century, coming up into the 1900s, a cluster of two and a half thousand. Do you know that the most recent quake in Launceston was last Christmas Eve? A 2.6 on the Richter scale. And in, on the 28th of November, there was a 3.1. These things are going on all the time. We're not always aware of them. It's interesting that, that in the worst of the cluster of quakes at the end of the 19th century, there was um, a quake that re was registered 800 kilometres away in Kyandra, south of Sydney, from Launceston. And during an earthquake that struck Lonnie on Saturday the 28th of December, 1929, the same year as the, those infamous floods, a number of chimneys around the city partially collapsed or cracked, including the kitchen chimney on the old Launceston Hospital. And it crashed down. There was about two metres worth of the top section of bricks collapsed through the operating theatre roof. St Andrew's Presley Church had uh, a monument on top and it toppled down onto the street, smashing all over the street, over St John Street. Fortunately, no one was injured. Now, our seismic issues are nothing compared with the church in Philadelphia. They really had some major issues to deal with. So let me just uh, fill you in a little bit about the Church of Philadelphia because it will help us with understanding what Jesus says to this church. So Revelation 3, 7 to 13, we're introduced to the church of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means, love of the brother. Uh, that, the name of that city, it's still in existence, but the name has changed. It's now called something like here I do have difficulty pronouncing, Alashahia um, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, so Alashahia. And it was 48 kilometres west of Sardis, the church that Jason spoke about last week. It was situated on the imperial road that leads from Rome to the east. So it was on a major thoroughfare for trade. It was known as a prosperous city well situated for trade and commerce. The rich volcanic soils made it ideal for winemaking. And we know it was an idolatrous city. We know historians tell us there was a temple to Zeus, who was the chief of the pantheon of gods for the Greeks. His, he was the god of weather and the symbol for Zeus was a thunderbolt. There was a temple to the god Dionysus, who was the god of wine, who loosened inhibitions and helped with creativity, etc. they thought, music and poetry. So Dionysus was the patron deity of Philadelphia. And like all the other cities in the area, they uh, had the imperial cult of emperor worship. So it was an idolatrous city. But Phil Philadelphia had a major geological problem it was built on a fault line that was very prone to horrendous earthquakes. In AD 17, an earthquake devastated 13 cities in the region, including Sardis, again, that we heard about last week, but it absolutely levelled the city of Philadelphia. 
So much so that the aftershocks were so prolonged and severe that most of the residents chose to live outside of the city and take up farming. It was just too unsafe to return to the city. By the time John wrote his letter near the end of the first century, so that was AD 17, he's possibly writing about 75 years later, the church had recovered, the city had recovered from the earthquakes and become a thriving centre of trade and agriculture. I took the liberty of just checking and apparently Alisha here was spared in this recent uh, set of earthquakes so over on the eastern side of Turkey, but it has suffered over 300 major tremors in the last month. Now, we don't know who planted the church in Philadelphia, most likely some of Paul's disciples, but what we do know is it wasn't a strong church, but it was a faithful church. Faithful to the Lord. It was like the little guy who was always getting picked on and knocked down but kept getting back up and turning up again. It was faithful. So what message does the Lord Jesus give to this little church in earthquake-prone Philadelphia? Well, turn with me to Revelation 3 and verse 7 and see what he says. Really, this is the the key line that introduces everything else that he says. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Now, as with all of the seven churches, Christ begins by reminding them of who he is. And that's what he does to the church at Philadelphia. He describes himself, though, in two ways that are not mentioned in that original vision in chapter 1. You won't see in the vision in chapter 1 mention about him being holy and true and holding the keys of David. First, he, he reminds them that he's holy and true. When Jesus describes himself as holy and true, he's basically saying that he's God. In Revelation 6.10, the souls of the martyrs cry out to God from under the altar and they're crying out in a loud voice and they say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. In John 12, 41, we're told that the vision that, that Isaiah had in chapter 6 of Isaiah of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple was a vision of Christ. We're told that he beheld Christ's glory on that day. So when, when the angels around that throne in Isaiah 6 are crying, holy, 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 they're praising the holy and true one, Jesus Christ. And in Mark 1, Jesus visits a synagogue and a man there has an unclean spirit. And he, 
he cries out when Jesus enters the synagogue and he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So this is saying, holy and true, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the promised Son of God. As he was holy and true on earth, he's now holy and true in the heavens above. The exalted Christ has not changed his nature, but he now has all authority. And so we see the next section moves to discussing his authority, the demonstration of him holding the keys of power. So he holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And it's a dramatic way of describing Jesus' divine authority. And it comes from Isaiah 22. So much of what we read in, this, in the book of Revelation is, comes from the Old Testament. Look at, the, at Isaiah 22, 22. And it's talking about a guy called Eliakim. And it says, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Assyria had besieged Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah, instead of looking to the Lord, who is holy and true, had tried to make an alliance with the king of Egypt. And Shebna, the secretary of the king, had set up this alliance. So God removes Shebna from that role and replaces him with Eliakim, the faithful one, who would really hold the keys of authority and trust God. Now, Jesus fulfills to a far greater extent this role that was given to Eliakim. He has the key to the house of David. He is David's royal son. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Namely, he can open heaven and he can open hell. And no one can reverse his decisions. It's like... The keys of trusted authority have been invested in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful one. And this is exactly what the church in Philadelphia needed to hear. What they needed most was to rely on Jesus Christ and know that he is their Lord and their God, the Holy One of Israel that he is David's royal son, seated on the throne. He's been coronated king of kings and lord of lords. Over the centuries, how many dear children of God have been comforted by their strong and tender Lord Jesus with these words? When faced with danger, persecution, crushing disappointment, Fear, being falsely accused, charged with blasphemy when they're not guilty. 
facing unjust imprisonment or death, widowed, lonely, jobless or childless, when given the worst possible diagnosis, especially when on their deathbed. These words have given massive, massive comfort. Hear them again. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens something, no one can shut it. When he shuts something, no one can open it. Do we hear that today? Take that to heart. Each one of us must learn to rely on Jesus Christ for our comfort and strength. Yet our natural tendency is to rely on ourselves, isn't it? We try and redouble our efforts, make sure this, make sure that. Or we rely on parents or family or doctors or politicians, not so much, or pastors, not so much these days either, or counsellors. We're told instead to run to Christ. He's our saviour. He's the Holy One. Find our refuge and strength in the rock of ages. He's got the trusted authority. He's got the power. Go to him. He holds unbreakable promises. I guess for Robin and myself, with her facing surgery in 10 days' time, these words come as a stirring, timely reminder to us. Our, our hope lies in the Lord. We can't add a day or a minute to the time that God has allotted to us. We can't make one hair on our head black or white. But he knows the number of hairs on our head. He cares about us. He who holds our life in his hands also holds the keys of death and Hades. He's the Lord. So in faith, we can rely on Christ, serve him with confidence and boldness, knowing that we go forth in his name. We stand by the power of the one that has an indestructible life. And if we quench his spirit, if we fail him, as most surely we will, we run back to him. He's the very one we need to go to, not flee from, because he has the words of eternal life. He is our rock and our redeemer. He's our strength, the holy and true one of Israel. And we look again at that love lavished out for us, lavished on us through the cross. This hope of the gospel we can never hear too much of. This hope of the gospel we need to keep hearing. And that's why Jesus, who is the gospel, is the good news, with every one of the churches, reminds them of an aspect of the gospel, who he is. And for this church, facing two problems, their weakness and opposition from the Jews, 
he gives three promises. He reminds them who he is, and then in the midst of their problems, he reminds them of promises. Here's the promises. He would take care of their enemies, verse 9. He would keep them from the hour of trial, verse 10. He would honour them, verse 12. So as I work through each of these, each section of these verses, notice how every I know and I will supplies a reassuring encouragement to this church. He says, I know, I know, I know, and I will, I will, I will. So look at verse 8. I know your deeds. Christ knew all about their faithful acts of love and devotion. How living quiet lives of godliness in that dark city made them shine like stars in the night to him. He knew they weren't bowing down before Dionysus or Zeus, that they weren't being spooked by the opposition from the Jews. He knew. He says, see, in the second part of verse 8, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So the one who holds the keys has placed before them an open door that no one can shut. That must be reassuring to them. Now, many understand the phrase, open door, to refer to doors of opportunity for ministry. And indeed, in the New Testament, you do see that. Paul often talked about an open door for effective ministry is there for me in Ephesus, and so I'm remaining there. But I think in this case, the most logical reference isn't to an open door for ministry, but to what is told them in the, at the beginning of the very next chapter. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. He's opening to them the scrolls. He's opening to this church an understanding of the future. And you'll see, he, he actually talks about that. Only Christ can open the door of understanding. And only Christ can open the door of heaven to anyone. And when he does, nothing can separate us from his love. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, persecution. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. The believer's death actually becomes the door into God's very presence. No amount of opposition can prevent that because Christ holds the key to life and death. Now, in the last part of verse 8, he says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Even mustard seed-sized faith in the Lord stands firm, overcomes mountainous obstacles. It's not really about 
how strong we are. It's looking to the Lord who has all the strength. In our weakness, he's our strength. In our foolishness, he's our wisdom. So Christ knew the Philadelphian believers weren't bowing the knee to Caesar or Dionysus or Zeus or they weren't put off by the Jews in the synagogue that were hounding them and persecuting them, making life difficult for them. They didn't like it. And in, the, in their weakness, they probably weren't strong in numbers. It wasn't exactly a really thriving church, probably. But Jesus knew the same circumstances. I know, I know, I know. I've copped it too. He'd experienced it from Herod, from Pilate, from the Jewish leaders who shouted out, crucify him, from the crowds who mocked him. Pressure to deny Christ has come in every generation for the church. It'll just take new forms. And we've got new forms today. And that's why what Graham shared before about gender and sexuality and singleness and marriage, there's a plurality, isn't there? He's talking about the fact we need to be prepared for what is becoming the pointy edge of opposition to Christians in our generation. We need to be prepared. We need to know what... The, the weapons are the, that the enemy uses against us. We, we needn't be ignorant of Satan's devices. We need to be prepared. Look at verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. There's a huge, huge irony here. The unbelieving Jews who were given the promises of God in the first place, remember Israel was given those promises, they end up with no place in the new Jerusalem and the Gentiles who weren't given the promises are given the assurance that God will write his name on them, including the name of the new Jerusalem and of his son, the Messiah. The Old Testament promise that the Gentiles would come and bow down to the Jews is being reversed because it isn't to do with someone being a Jew outwardly. It's not just because a person is circumcised and has Jewish descent that they automatically have God's favour. It's... A person who's a Jew inwardly, Romans tells us, whose circumcision is of the heart and not of the flesh, who believes in the Messiah, that person is a true Jew, if you like. And Jews and Gentiles share together in that promise, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus. And here was a church of Gentiles in Philadelphia believing these promises originally given to the Jews. Now the Lord Jesus promises to make the unbelieving Jews of a synagogue of Satan. Remember, Satan, that, that term literally means adversary, accuser. 
So the Jews of the synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia will come and fall down at the feet of the church in Philadelphia and acknowledge that Satan had deceived them. And the Christians were right. Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he loves the church. All true believers everywhere, both Jew and Gentile. Now we need to take courage from this. We need to realise that the day is coming when the tables are going to be turned. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. There are heaps of people around us today who may mock us and scoff at what we believe and think we're childish, think we're, we're just deluded. But the day is coming when they will eat their words. And the very gospel that we stand for and we preach and proclaim, they will come to acknowledge, yes, that is right. Jesus Christ is Lord. We who may be little and despised now will triumph at the last day. God will raise us up and, and he will give us a place in the new heavens and the new earth. We are prone to forget this. It's a much needed reminder to us as it was to the church of Philadelphia as we face our own troubles, the story of the book of Revelation is we win. But we will only win if we don't give up, if we stand firm, if we realise our inheritance and lay hold of it. We can't afford to forget this or we will become discouraged, lose heart in this unsympathetic post-Christian world. Look at verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Note that phrase, test the inhabitants of the earth. It's not easy to say exactly what this refers to, but we shouldn't overlook the fact that it's a promise. Since you've kept my command, I will also keep you. So it may be a reference to the empire-wide Roman persecution that occurred under Domitian. Domitian, the emperor, was a self-proclaimed Lord and God. It's the very term he, he took to himself. He had to worship Domitian as Lord and God. And he became a ruthless dictator and he was probably on the throne at the time that John wrote this letter. And he was um, killed, assassinated by some of his own um, followers who, who got exasperated with him. It might refer to the worldwide tribulation of the last days that the New Testament speaks about in some places. Although it is difficult to 
to see the relevance of Jesus promising to keep a church 2,000 years ago safe from the trial that hasn't yet happened. The biggest problem with both of these views is that everywhere else in the book of Revelation, testing the inhabitants of the earth, that the, in the Greek the word is literally earth dwellers, it refers to unbelievers. It refers to unbelievers in contrast to believers who are the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven, unlike earth dwellers. At any time of testing to come is going to be far worse for unbelievers than it is for believers because Jesus has only promised to keep safe his children in the hour of trial. I will keep you safe. In the midst of this trial, coming on the earth dwellers, I will keep you safe. Think about what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. That can also be translated as keep us from the time of trial. In fact, some modern versions of the Lord's Prayer actually have that phrase. So God promises never to leave or forsake his people. He will be with us. So regardless of what the particular situation was, it's a promise from God to keep the church in Philadelphia close to his heart, safe in his arms from all their enemies. What is clear is that the Philadelphian church would be rewarded by Christ. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you. And so like the church in Philadelphia today, we need to hear these words. The church in Myanmar at the moment needs to hear these words and take it to heart. They're suffering terrible persecution. Church in Egypt is finding it very difficult to get approval for um, to you know, erect buildings and open, open up churches. There's a, a court case at the moment in Egypt where a 62-year-old woman had been raped by some Muslims. And then she was left on the street and, and her and her husband were attacked and then they took her to court and prosecuted her for immorality. And the, the, church, the authorities of the land are upholding these guys in their civil case. Now, what do you do when the tables are turned on you and, and you just find it horrendously difficult? I reckon you go to the promises of God. I reckon you go to a passage like this and you cry out just like the souls of the martyrs under the altar and you say, how long, O oh Lord, before you vindicate us and avenge our blood? But you cry out knowing that he holds the keys. You cry out to God and you know he's your Lord, your God and your Saviour. And he says, I know, I know, I know. I will, I will, I will. Now, we wish his will meant yesterday. His will will be in his good time. 
because he also wants to strengthen our faith through these things. Remember Jesus' words. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. We've just got to believe that. Take it to heart. Think of Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus promises to be with us and sustain us in whatever trials come our way. He hasn't necessarily promised that we won't face trials. In fact, he said we will. But in the middle of whatever trial comes our way, whether it's physical, spiritual, political, financial, emotional, whatever the trial is that comes our way, he's our rock and our redeemer. And we need to look to him and rely on him. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. It's like, like a parent saying they, when they get a phone call, we've had a few of these over the years from, from children. Remember, when you have children, they grow up, it doesn't necessarily mean all your problems are over. Um, we've, we've had a number of phone calls over the years. Dad, I've crashed the car. Or I'm in the hospital. Or the car's broken down, can you come and get me? And you say, hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. And that's what the Lord's saying here. By the sheer grace of God, faith's response to Jesus' coming is to press on and not give up. This is what the perseverance of the saints involves. It may not be pretty. It won't be easy. But it's the road along which we must walk with Christ. He says, be faithful and I will be with you. And if you do... I will give you a crown that no one can take away. Listen to what Paul said at the end of his life. His last words in the book of 2 Timothy, very last chapter. And he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He was in prison, awaiting execution. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If you long for the appearing of Christ, this is for you. Noah understood this. Lot understood this when his righteous soul was vexed by the inhabitants of the city around him. Daniel knew this. Esther knew this. Boy, it's worth us looking at these promises. 
and claiming them and taking them to heart, knowing the tables are going to be reversed and God will vindicate us and take us home. My dear brothers and sisters, hold on to your faith. Don't be like Esau and trade it for a, for a passing meal. Don't let tiredness or sickness or bad examples of others or anything else make you loosen your grip on Christ and his reward. Grasp him tightly. Don't let go because he will never let go of you. He's coming for you. Look at verse 12, the first part. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. It's possible, in fact likely, that Philadelphia's history of earthquakes lies behind this promise. Being made a pillar in the temple of my God, remember the temple of Zeus had been knocked flat. The temple of Dionysus had been knocked flat in earthquakes and tremors. The whole city had been knocked down to the ground in AD 17. Now a pillar gives strong structural support to a building. Bridges are only safe as, as much as their pylons are strong. God makes our faith and our character strong so we can be pillars of faith and integrity to serve Christ in the world. The phrase, and never again will they leave it, is in stark contrast with the earthquake, earthquake that had flattened Philadelphia and nearly all the inhabitants had fled out into the countryside for quite a while until it was safe to return to the city. Never again will we leave the New Jerusalem. Nothing, nothing will, will take away our hope and our strength in that. And if we believe and we know that he who is for us and not against us, he who keeps us in the palm of his hand, then that gives enormous encouragement, comfort and strength to us. There's something really precious here too. In Revelation 21, 22, we're told that there will be no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Here it says we'll be made a pillar in the temple. Now, if there's not going to be a temple in the new heavens and the new earth, we're told that the God himself and the Lamb are the temple. What he's saying is when we are made pillars in the temple, we're made strong in the Lord. He has united himself to us and nothing will be able to shake that. Union. The writer to the book of Hebrews reminds them we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're inhabitants of the new Jerusalem that is above, but we have to persevere to inherit the promise. That's exactly the message that's been given here. These are very great and precious promises. 
to hold on to when life is rough and tumble and things go pear-shaped. Hold on. Look at the second part of verse 12. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. When God writes his name on us, he's saying they're mine. I've signed up for them. When God revealed his name in the Old Testament, it was held to be so sacred that the Jews would not speak that name. They substituted other, another term. I won't go into the details of that. But they wouldn't call God by his sacred covenant name lest they took it in vain. Remember the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But here, God's going to write his name all over us. And the promises. Inhabitant of the new Jerusalem. Guaranteed by me. Sealed with the blood of the Lamb. Christ himself is going to write his own new name on them. That's what baptism does. Regardless of whatever our view is on baptism, infants, adults, whatever, you are baptised into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The promises of God are taken and applied to a person. We belong to God. He's put his name on us, not so much in baptism because we all know people who've been baptised into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit who don't seem to be believers. It's not earthly water baptism that is going to guarantee us a place in heaven it's the washing of regeneration and the renewing of our heart when we're born again that baptism points to and is a picture of. Those who are born again by the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts will be victorious because they are his true children, adopted into the household of faith. They bear his name in their hearts and reveal his character in their lives. Ask yourself, is the Holy Spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I belong to the Lord Jesus? Do you know that witness in your heart? Romans talks about it. How can we know that we have his name written on us? How can a person know that? Read this last verse, verse 13. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, including this. What comfort Christ gives to his church in Philadelphia to know that he's written his name on them. But they need the ears to hear it. They need to be able to take it to heart and not just be um, indifferent or passe about it. When God places his name on things, things change. Faith grows. People 
who've received his name, who know they're born again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who know that at the end of the days every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their faith shows in their life. The promises of God show up in their spirit. So I can wrap up today's message very simply, just like this. The holy and true Lord who holds the keys of David will keep you. So be bold in faith. Be bold in Christ and hold on to his promises. Don't let anything shake your confidence because if you truly share in his grace and bear his name, then nothing will separate you from his love. Nothing. This is where boldness of faith kicks in, doesn't it? Take to heart these promises that Christ gave to the church at Philadelphia. He said, I will take care of your enemies. Look after our enemies too. He said, I will keep you through this trial that's going to come on the whole earth, on the earth dwellers. He will keep us close to his heart. And he says, I will honour you with the crown of life. Paul said, which the righteous judge will award to me on that day and to all who love his appearing. What we need to do is keep on keeping on believing. Keep on keeping on trusting. Years ago, there was an ad on TV for British paints. And they'd hold the can of paint and they'd do... On the, anyone remember that? And it said, trust British paints? Sure can. Trust Jesus Christ? Sure can. We can trust the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God. You are magnificent to us. You are wonderful. We thank you for these promises, exceedingly great and very precious. The more we look into them, the more we realise the depth of them, the breadth of them, the height of them, the length of them, the magnificence that backs them up because you are the promise keeper. We thank you, Lord. Help us to have the ears to hear these promises and to take them to heart. Help us to realise, Lord, when we're mocked on the, in the school ground for our faith or we're mocked on the uni campus for our faith or in our workplace for our faith, that we believe the truth, that you are the holy and true Son of God and we believe in you. That the day is coming when earth dwellers will have to confess that is true. The tables will be reversed. May we not doubt. May we not be shaken in our faith. For we are receiving a city that cannot be shaken. Lord, encourage us by the power that dwells within us the power of your Holy Spirit, seal these promises to our heart for your glory, 
for our good and the good of your church around the world. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.